All right. I will also mention as we start, I have announcements. I'm the announcement guy this morning and this evening and Wednesday, so if you have announcements, please get those to me uh, in between times if you can. All right, so Ephesians chapter 2. We went through Ephesians chapter 1 last week, uh, talked through that, and in that chapter, and that was our introductory chapter, we saw the greatness of God's power displayed through his son, Jesus. And if there's a primary verse for this study, and certainly the primary verse for chapter 1, it would be verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That kind of starts everything off in the, in the book of Ephesians, in the letter of the Ephesians, and gives us a snapshot of what's going to be discussed throughout the letter, but certainly in the first chapter. So let's go ahead and I want to do a better job of managing the clock this morning than I did last week. Uh, you can help me stay on track with that. Let's go right into uh, Ephesians, the second chapter. We will read the first 10 verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, as we start out, uh, verse 1, Paul, through inspiration here, begins by telling the Ephesians they were spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. One thing that uh, I appreciate so much about the Apostle Paul is he is very straightforward. There's no question uh, what it is he means and what it is that he wanted the Ephesians to know and understand. So, the original word translated trespass means to make a false step or stumble from the path you're intended to be on. And what is sin? So, what's the difference between sin and a trespass?
Well, what's it mean to sin? To miss the mark. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, sin is to miss the mark. Now, it's interesting that he says trespasses and sins. And trespass, again, being a false step or a stumble. Think about the path that we are on as Christians. And that path, God has provided us through the scriptures. We can see it, know it, and understand it. And yet, this is what happens through most of our lives. Now, for them, uh, before they had obeyed the gospel, they were certainly separated and missing the mark. Verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Those who are living in a relationship with the world rather than in a relationship with God walk according to the world. And it's interesting when you see uh, this statement who, about the prince of the power of the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? And I will tell visitors, if you have a comment, please raise your hand, and then we'll get a microphone to you so you can answer that. Satan. Satan. Now, that's an interesting thing. Do you think about Satan being, having the power of a prince? He has been granted that by who? Yeah, God allowed him, allows him to be the prince of the power of the air, of this environment that we live in. Do not most people that we come in contact with day in, day out, are they not serving Satan? They are. Now, they might not tell you that they are serving Satan, and they might not even understand that they're serving Satan, but there are only two camps to be in. That of being a Christian in a right relationship with God and that of being outside of that relationship with God. And then you are serving the prince of the power of the air. He's allowed limited power in the world, but he does direct the ways of most men. It's important for us to think about that as we come in contact with folks throughout the week and throughout our daily lives. It's difficult sometimes to say somebody who is not serving God is serving Satan. I'm sure you, as I do, have family members and know a lot of folks who are good moral folks, decent human beings, and yet Satan is serving as their master. That's a difficult thing to, to think about, but it's something that we need to understand because that will help us to create an urgency when we talk to them. Right? When we see them and we have interaction with them, that will help us to have an urgency in the conversations we have with them about 
being in a right relationship with God. Philippians 3.18 says, For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Again, we don't like to think of those who are serving Satan as enemies of, I mean, we don't like to think of those that we love, those that we know, those that are friends of ours, but if they're outside of a relationship with Christ, they're enemies of Christ. And they are, even if they're not doing it knowingly, they are bowing to the prince of the power of the air. All right, verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. By nature, children of wrath. So he says, you lived in the lust of your flesh and of the mind. Kind of interesting. Look at, uh, look at 1 John, which will be familiar to all of us. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. First John 2, 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the, of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Those who live in the world are driven by the lusts of the world. Lust is a passion or a strong desire, and it just becomes your nature, as verse 3 teaches us. It's almost like you describe it, I think, almost as an animal instinct, where it's something that just becomes automatic. They don't think about it. That's just, that's just how they live. So it is interesting to me that we see desires of the flesh and desires of the mind, that he spells that out. What... What do you think the desire of the mind is as compared to the desire of the flesh? Anybody want to comment on that? Thank you. If a man looks upon a woman with those sorts of thoughts in his mind, he's already created adultery. So that would be Maybe not lust of the flesh, but it's lust of the mind. All right. Very good. Anybody else? Yes, sir. The verse you uh, referenced in John is uh, similar to uh, what happened to Eve. The uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the mind part would be more like uh, the pride of life. Uh, where it was desired to make one wise. And so uh, the flesh part would be eating it, and then the the, um, 
desire to make one wise would be more, more like the mind. All right, so there's, there is a process to most sin, right? It doesn't just, you're not just walking down the road and all of a sudden you sin, right? Most sins, there's a thought process that goes on that you allow to take place before that sin is committed, right? So there is a lust or a desire that you can stop in the process of your mind before you get there and actually sin. But if not, you're going to carry that out. But thank you for, uh, for that good comment. All right, so let's move on to verse... Oh, we got one? All right. Oh, we got one back there, too. All right. I'll try not to meal my words, but um, it reminds me of something that's a very common statement. Pull that mic up a little, would you? There a you very go. common statement in the rehabs is, I lapsed two days before I lapsed. I think that's applicable here. It triggered you. The thought comes into your mind. You try to put it off. You try. To, you set your. We set ourselves up. We, we. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know how to explain explain it. I think it's kind of self-explanatory in itself that you did it before you did it. Your mind. But I'm sorry. No, that's I, good. That, no, that's good, Stephen. I appreciate it. Hey, Eric, one, one thing that I think is important to note in verses 1 through 3 is that this is really a good summary of Romans 1 and 2. Because mm-hmm. what he's basically saying is the you, Gentiles, the we, the Jews, we're, we're both in the same boat. We're both lost. We're both in sin. We both sinned. And without Christ, we're in our sins. And so he's setting up this whole part, this whole thought process Jew and Gentile, you're both under the same curse of sin, but God's done something, and this is what God has done, and the result is both of us can be unified together in one, in one building of God. No, very good. That's absolutely right, and we got, oh, we got two more. All right. Yeah, what you were saying about it, it all begins in the mind there. Um, that's why the wise man said, I believe it's Ecclesiastes 4, verse 23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Uh, so you need to be careful about what goes into the heart, the mind, because what goes into is what's going to come out. So you put good things in there, good things are going to happen, bad things, right the opposite. So keep thy heart with all diligence. Diligence means constant and earnest effort. Very good. Thank you. He's talking about the difference between like the mind and the and the body or the flesh. You know, James talks about you know temptation starts in the mind, and when our desires are you know are, or there's desires that entice, and when desire has conceived, and I think the idea of, of conceiving is when we give in to those desires, um, when when we allow the thoughts or things in our minds to continue to fester and grow, and then. We, they're, they're conceived, I mean, we, we give in to those desires, and that's when, when the flesh 
takes place because I mean there are sins outside of the flesh that are typically just in the heart or the mind but a, a good majority of the sins that we fall privy to are the physical ones and we see that throughout scripture a lot of the the physical sins the fleshly sins the fleshly lust and that that all starts in the mind and i think like Stephen was saying is when 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 it's in our mind and we keep thinking about it then that's when we're, we're already starting to lose the battle and so, and Paul even talked about it in Romans, like, there is that constant battle between the mind and the flesh. You know, I, I know what I need to do, but what I actually do, I, you know, I don't do, and, and things like that. So, it, it is a constant battle for us, but keeping our minds pure and focused on Christ is the things that help us overcome the flesh. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And combining that with what, uh, what John said When we have a temptation, if we will immediately go from that temptation to something, and we know the things that we need to put in our mind, if they have not, if they're not already planted there and stopping us, we know where we need to go to stop that process. It's a choice for us to stop that process. All right, let's move on. Verses four and five. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So now Paul turns from describing the condition of man outside of the relationship with Christ to the blessings of being in a relationship with Christ. So God was rich in mercy toward the Ephesians, and mercy is a compassion or pity shown toward another who is an offender, taking away the penalty or consequences of the offense. So do we need, did they need mercy? Do we need mercy? Absolutely. Mercy has to be... uh, something that we are receiving in our relationship from God. Verse 5 says, God extended this rich mercy and great love even when they had chosen spiritual death in a sinful lifestyle. It's through his grace that we are saved. Salvation is in no way earned or deserved by the Christian. Now, we're going to talk about this more in detail when we get down verse 9 and verse 10. So I don't want to jump into that in depth right now. But verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So, being saved by the grace of God is an absolute We are saved by grace. We are not saved by works. And we're going to talk about that, verse 9 and verse 10. But the grace of God is an amazing thing to discuss, to feel, to have as part of our relationship. And what is grace? Unmerited favor. That's exactly right. Uh, something that we do not deserve and we have not earned. It is not something that, uh, that 
is a result of something we have done, but there are conditions. And we're gonna see that here in a few minutes. All right, verses six and seven. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we're raised out of the watery grave of baptism and showered with blessings from God and from heaven in Christ. And in that sense, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have become united with him, that's Christ, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And Colossians 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 7, Paul describes the riches as surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. What does it mean to surpass something? Go beyond. Exactly right. You notice throughout what we're reading, all of the attributes of God and Christ are described as providing us much more than what we need, much more than what we can understand, much more than, than what we um, could even desire. And in this case, these surpassing riches of his grace and kindness, it's something that showered on the children of God. beyond what we could expect or understand. That should comfort us a great deal, as it should have comforted the Ephesians a great deal. Verse 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So that verse, taken by itself, says that we've been saved by grace, but I would argue that if we understand what faith actually is, that even without the rest of this, even without 9 and 10, we can understand that there's a difference between the faith that most of the religious world would claim and the faith that we see in the Bible. Now, if you ask someone, one of your denominational friends, what is faith? What kind of answer are you likely to get? Faith. 
I would say for most of the folks I've talked to, that faith, as far as they're concerned, faith is a belief. I believe in, in Jesus Christ. I believe in God. Is there more to faith? If you had to define faith, or a faith that would save us. Now, belief is certainly part of faith, right? But belief is not the only thing that there is to faith. Saving faith involves trusting God and an expressed obedient compliance or a surrender to his will. So if we understand what faith is, even without going on and talking about the works, we can understand that there is more to our relationship with God than just belief. It's not I believe and I'm saved, right? It's I believe, I react, do those things that God asked me to do, and then I am saved. The Hebrew writer really answers that question very well. Last verse in chapter 10 talks about we have faith to the preserving of the soul. So there's saving faith. Then in chapter 11, he describes what that faith looks like. He talks about Abel offering the sacrifice that God told him to offer. Noah building the ark like God told him to build. Abraham getting up and traveling when God told him to get up and go and so forth. That's saving faith. So verse 9, good works cannot be produced to save us. So what he says in verse 9 is not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Why is it that we are not to boast in works? I mean, it's answered in verse 10. Are those works our works? Now, we're performing them, but are they our works? They're not. They're the works of God, and they are the works that God has put before us to do as his children. It's a responsibility that we've been given or an opportunity that we have been given And we're given opportunities to do work for God all the time. All the time. Carrie? I mean, the concept of our salvation is not on the result of works goes back to Romans. If if we earned our salvation based on works, it becomes wages due. But clearly that's not what it says because... The grace is the gift of God. It's a gift. And so it's not something that, we, that we've earned. But to your point earlier, our faith is going to be demonstrated by the things that we do, which is verse 10. Yeah, very good. Thank you. That's absolutely right. Any other comments? Just, just picking back off what Carrie just said, but the aspects of the things that we do has to be accompanied by the heart that is causing them to do so. Because we have the example of the, you know, the, the Pharisee and tax collector. 
the Pharisee bragged about all these great things that he had done for God. But how, how was he looked at when he walked away? Because his heart was, he, he was prideful. His heart, was, his heart wasn't driving him to do those, those acts. He was doing it for self, self-glory. And so thinking about the works that are done, people can, can do good works, but what are the intentions behind those works? And I think that's what lays a little bit more weight on the aspect of faith is what's driving us to do the works rather than just simply doing them. No, good point. So verse 10 kind of explains, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God expects us to do the works that he has given us to do. He created those works for us, and he prepared them for us. Do you think about, you know, we have opportunities all the time, and this congregation is, in my view, an exceptional congregation at doing the things that need to be done. The opportunities, the many opportunities we have within the congregation and and outside the congregation, um, in my view, this congregation does an exceptional job at that. But you think about when an opportunity comes up, well, this is a work that God has put before me. Not just, well, this is, this is an opportunity, but this is an opportunity and an expectation because what we don't know is God may have planned for me to do this, whatever this is, right? He may have put it before me because it needs to be done, and I'm the person that at this point can do that, that opportunity put in front of me. If you think about it that way, and again, I think we do an exceptional job here at helping one another and doing all of those things that are put before us. All right, let's go ahead and move on unless there's another comment. Let's look at the second half here of the chapter. Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's just read those two. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, By the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul now specifically addresses, uh, he's been leading up to this, he specifically addresses the Gentiles, and he asked them to remember who they formerly were. Now, he says they were called uncircumcision by the circumcision. So by the Jews, they were called the uncircumcision. Was that a uh, a kind term? 
When the Jews said it? No, certainly not. Now, it was, it was true, but they used it as a derogatory term when interacting with Gentiles. Because, of course, they were in a right relationship with God, in a covenant relationship with God. Everyone else was not. So they saw everyone else as kind of a, a lower form of human being. Verse 12 kind of reminds us, he says, remember that you were at times separated from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth. That would be, well, what is a commonwealth? What's that? Yeah, okay. It's, it's a state or an, or an organization. So they were excluded from, in this case, the covenant that the Jews had. They had no citizenship, no part of that community. They were strangers to the covenant of promise. So the covenant of promise, again, was just for the Jews. So that left them without hope and without God. And then verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus, you formerly who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So in verses 11 and 12, Paul said, remember who you were, Gentiles, before the relationship with Christ. And now in verses 13 through 16, he points out, you were far off. Through Jesus' blood, you are brought near. Jesus is their peace. Christ broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. So now as Christians, they are all in a right relationship with God, Jew and Gentile which, I mean, this was written to the entire church, which was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And I'm sure the Jews needed to hear all of this as, you know, the, the former practicing Jews, now Christians with a Jewish background, needed to hear this uh, just like the Gentiles did. Jesus abolished the law of commandments through this, that abolishment of the law and commandments, through Jesus, the Jew and Gentile became one, and peace was established. Think about some of the things that can cause conflict amongst brethren today. I don't think any of them come anywhere close to the situation that they had 
with Jew and Gentile now being together as Christians and serving Christ. And yet, did they have an option? Was it good for them to, uh, to make, set up the formerly Jews church over here at this end of town and the uh, Gentile church? Is that what they're told to do? No. We need to think about when we see things like this, how do I interact with my brethren and am I loving and understanding that they have the same relationship with Christ that I have and looking at that and saying, I can get along with you even though we might have nothing in common beyond our Christianity. But do we need anything else in common beyond Christianity? I would argue that we don't. If that's not the primary driver in our lives, we need to give it some, some serious thought. But think about the interaction that could have taken place. Go ahead. We have a comment. Make a comment about uh, Jesus uh, reconciled us to God, put us back into contact with God, and, and allowed us to have fellowship with him. But it it uh, connects back to verse 6, which um, says he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a tendency to, for me to think of this life as kind of rough, and then we've got heaven, you know, in the future where that's where everything's going to be great. But uh, there's a sense there where right now, uh, we're sitting in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. It's going on now. And I don't think uh, sometimes we appreciate that as much as we should because we're connected back to God. We're in fellowship with him. And right now, we're sitting together in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. It's happening right now. And sometimes we may not appreciate that as much as we should. Excellent point. No, that's absolutely right. We are members of the kingdom of God, and as members of the church universal, we are receiving heavenly blessings. And uh, the point you make is a, is a very good one. All right, let's look at verse 17 and ni- through 19 right quick here. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You know, I've never... uh, never had citizenship anywhere other than the United States. I can imagine if, for some reason, I wound up in another country and had to get citizenship there, and I had longed for that citizenship. Let's say all my family was there. I'd longed for that citizenship. How much would that mean to me when I finally became a citizen? 
it would mean a great deal. Well, for the Gentiles, they had never had opportunity to be citizens. And now they are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. All right. We'll close again uh, in two weeks. We will pick back up here and then move into the first half of chapter three. Thank you for your comments and for your attention.